going to try to convince me to save the world. Some of our ideas are a bit ambitious. I know how hard this is for you to hear. Government should be afraid of their people. You got the makings of greatness in you. What we do in life echoes in eternity. If you could see your whole life from start to finish. We would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. Love is the one thing that transcends dimensions of time and space. Are you watching closely? Welcome, my beautiful, wonderful listener, to the Talking About Talking podcast, where we talk about everything and anything, and we talk about talking about those things. Today, I am joined by former NHL player Todd Warner. Thank you for joining me today, Todd. Nice to be here, Chuck. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, man. Uh, so I played hockey. I played in the age of three to like 26 until mice ate my hockey equipment. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. And I, uh, I, my most competitive, I played when I was 11 and I didn't like it. We won OMHA, all of Ontario. I didn't like it. I didn't have the, I don't know, whatever it was that's required to like want to be super excellent at a particular thing. I didn't have it in me. I was good, but like I didn't take criticism well, for example. So when coaches were like, hey, when you're out there, you should try not to do this and try not to do that and try to do this different. I didn't see it as like helping me. It was them being like, hey, Trevor, you're not doing good enough, but I'm fucking 11 so it's hard for me to at that time yeah, right. yeah so what what kind of advice would you have for young kids that are doing well but are struggling to kind of find their way in the sport like that well it sounds like you had a good team you know if you're able to win all ontario i mean i, I think the you know the philosophy about that now has changed a lot and and have, having coached uh minor hockey junior hockey college hockey i think um you know, the days of being, uh, you know, kind of a ruthless dictator behind the bench are, are, are far gone. And I'm glad because I've seen it myself and experienced it myself in some respects, I guess. So especially when you're working with an 11 year old team, I mean, um, if it, as a as an 11 year old player, if you can just understand that nobody has ever played a perfect hockey game and if you can just say to yourself well the coach is only trying to help me learn faster how i can be the best version of myself and then i think that's a good mindset so if you're a parent and you're talking to your your adam or peewee age player and the coach is saying hey maybe when you when the puck comes to you here think about this you know and part of it is just the it, it, it's it's the tone i think uh you know <laughs> that that has changed uh dramatically in our time in sport right so um yeah you know i've coached that level I, I've tried to uh, use some video to reinforce what you see and I mean I always think and I tell the college kids I play I coach now and, and work with and we have video sessions and, and I, I say you know I was probably 13 or 14 before I ever saw myself on film and that was actually kind of ahead of the time because we had a parent uh, who would you know tape the games in the Blenheim Arena when I was playing Ewe or Bantam right so I so I played you know half a dozen years of hockey and never had a visual of what what I looked like mm. in my gear, you know, just the whole thing. It was just, uh, I can remember it really well. Like, wow, that's a, you know, that's how I skate. That's how I, you know, I just, so until you can use video maybe to reinforce what you're trying to teach a young player, I think it, I think it could help them get their head around it. But mostly it's just the way you approach that and not being um, critical, but trying to, you know, 
just reinforce what you're what you're getting across and if the player can understand that you know again nobody plays perfectly that we're only trying to get better then i think it kind of fits in the team concept of everybody's experiencing that together then you feel like you're part of something bigger and so that's a that's a challenge especially for coaches my age um, a lot of them are dads and they're getting back into the sport or sports in general and they've been coached a certain way sometimes that's how they think it should happen well i think we all know that uh, society has changed in a good way yeah yeah so, that that whole bit on like kind of mean message you sent about like when you're 11 years old just remember that not every game's perfect and you're just trying to, everyone's trying to be better that kind of thing it's like th- really thinking about that it's hard to not get emotional thinking man man i needed that when i was 11 <laughs> i needed someone <laughs> well, to tell it, me that I mean, some kid and that's part of it too is that as you get older you know some kids need a kick in the butt like that's just part of that's just part of things sometimes um, motivation happens in different ways and, yeah uh, but when you're on a team part of it is tying it back to you know we need you we need this you know and if you're playing golf or you're playing uh tennis you know an individual sport then it's a little it's a little different a lot of things hang on you individually but you know when it's the collective and you're trying to get a point as a group then then i think it helps shelter some of that burden right yeah and i think that's a good point that like you mentioned with some kids need a kick in the ass because like i my whole life i've needed very very gentle correction like from my mom (laughs) from teachers from my partners like if i don't get gentle correction i just i don't do well with it and so it's just interesting that you're like some needs kids need a kick in the ass and i think some do and i've never been that kid and it's just it's got to be so difficult as a coach to know which kids need what kind of correction because it's not like you can like you got a team of people you got a team of a bunch of different humans like how do you how do you properly guide each one based on their own individual needs well it's hard to know in minor hawk i would say you know your start is always from the positive side encouraging and and you know again like you said you know you can play on a good team and be a good player and not have the drive or motivation kind of kind of see it through and and i was not that kid like i wanted to be the best and you know not just just win right so mm-hmm. that's a that's a you know and as a coach when you see that in a kid you just oftentimes let them be at the front of the line and let them show uh, and that sort of just uh, you know generates the sort of um, enthusiasm and, and culture you want with your team now as kids it, it's a little i think you again you start from the positive side of it and then as you under, come to understand your team and how they play and who's who and the personalities. Um, there's always going to be a few kids that need a little push, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. Right. And, and when you get older, I mean, I, I sometimes sit down with the kids in college, even in junior, you know, and, and they want it. They'll say to me, Hey, like, you know, if I'm not doing that, you, you know, don't be afraid to give, give me an earful or that, you know, mm-hmm. they, they understand they need to push too. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the process now is these kids are a little more self-aware and, and uh, understand, you know, the motivation behind, it some nights it's not always there and don't be afraid to you know uh, get on me you know push me right Mm so and the ones you know the what i found is the higher you go there's more of them. yeah well that makes sense because if you develop that kind of awareness of that you need correction that you need other eyes you need to be able to see your faults through other people then that's the kind of thing that's going to make you better yeah and the more of more of them you have you know they're self-motivated in some ways to other kids but they also know like they need to correct it and they need to you know be accountable to the team and that's part of uh you know as they get older and and wanting to be uh you know, wanting to play at higher levels and push themselves, then they they recognize that and they and they you know kind of govern each other in some respects. You know, I got twenty two four year old guys that are on any given 
college team, there's a half a dozen, maybe 10 even that could play pro if they want somewhere. So they recognize they're right there. And, um, you know, what's the next step? Who am I going to be? How am I going to, you know, be part of the solution? All those things that, you know, you want good teams to have. And so sometimes it takes on a mind of its own and your leadership sort of just governs the group and you're just there to kind of steer them in the right way. And that's, uh, it's, that's fun to see that happen on a team. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I look you kind of lay the foundation in the fall and by Christmas it's taken a mind of its own and then at the end of the year you're just opening the door you know that's really what the at that level at least the, the goal is from uh, year to year right so yeah what what was that like for you how you like because I mean I've not there's not a lot of people that have been in the NHL there's there's a small amount of the human population that have experienced that right so like what what's that like that transition from playing minor hockey and then moving up and then moving up and then eventually getting drafted well it happened fast you know in some ways for me because i i was playing here i was playing in blenheim small town and and uh you know at the time there's no there's no internet there's no way to really measure yourself against uh kids your age right so i i was playing b we played b hockey here we had a lot of good teams and great coaching we, we were lucky to be honest but i played at least a, i played a year ahead most of my time up all the way through so we're playing b hockey and yeah we would play chatham and we would play sorry Windsor. What, do you, what do you mean when you say a year ahead so i was born in 74 i played most was 73 so i played mixed hockey oh, okay. but i would play like say as a as a 11 year old i played with the 12s and 13s mm-hmm. and as and then the next year i would play with as an 11 year old just with the 11 12s mm-hmm. so i kind of just shuffled a year ahead with a, a group of uh 73 born players mm-hmm. all through who were a lot lots of good players and um so by the time I got to, you know, Bantam or Midget, I played the last year of Bantam. I played, um, we went to the finals and lost. And then I played some Midget games. I played some Junior C games here in town as a, you know, 14, 15 year old. And then I went to Junior B. But I, I mean, we played a little bit of spring hockey um, the year. So like 13, 14 year old year. So I had an idea, like we played some Toronto teams. We played some London teams. We played some teams, mostly, you know, Southwestern Ontario like AAA level spring hockey. And I mean, we played four tournaments in two years, so you're not really seeing everyone, but, um, and we did good. We we had some good players locally. We put a team together, mostly of just Chatham Kent, and we were competitive. And so that was sort of the first eye opener that, wow, there's, you know, that that team's from Toronto. They they won all Ontario. That team's from Ottawa, whatever. Team's from Chicago. So you feel like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a decent player in this age group. This is my own age group. I've been playing, you know, largely ahead with older kids. So, and then I went to Junior B, you know, it seemed like a huge step. Like I was playing Bantam most of the year, and then I went to Junior B camp, um, mini camp, like this time of year. Then got invited back to the main camp. So I was sort of, it sort of just happened fast. I make a Chatham team at that time that was stacked, and we were, you know, we went to the finals. Um, that's the year that Brian Wiseman set the scoring record in Junior B, and I was just a bit player, young guy. We had, um, you know, a, a half a dozen guys that got drafted, half a dozen guys got scholarships, and then I'm right, and, and the next thing I know, I'm a first round pick. In the OHL. So I go, I go from Bantam whirlwind season, a junior B right into Windsor. And so, yeah. And then, you know, it's, it just happens. It happens fast. I had a coach who loved me. We were a rebuilding team. I got to play a lot as a, as a rookie in the OHL, which is hard to do now. Um, Why is that hard to do now? Well, it's just, it's just such a big jump. You know, the players are, uh, you know, it's an older league. Um, I just think the, the quality of the 19, 20 year old juniors now, you know, that, that, that difference between a 16 year old rookie in the OHL and a 19 year old third year guy is, is a huge, just in terms of oh, just okay. your development, you yeah. know, the, um, it's just, it's a big step. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard 
So you have to be elite in some ways and mature physically, mentally mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Well, you got to be confident. You got to have a little bit of bravery too, to be able to yeah, for put, sure. put and, the wheels on. You need, with... But you need a coach too that believes in you. And, yeah. and oftentimes, like my situation, I, we were re- rebuilding team. We didn't have a whole lot of depth. And so I'm kind of thrust into a top six role that um, a lot of players like me that age in the league weren't. And so we sort of turn things around quick. I played with a guy named Corey Stillman, who was also in the same boat. He, he played a lot too as a, as a rookie. And we kind of came in together, pushed each other to be better. And then, you know, a year later, we're lining up for the draft. So, so yeah, um, a lot of things, you know, again, not a new story. A lot of, a lot of things have to happen in your way. And, um, but, you know, I just, I did work at it. I did spend time in the gym. We used to, we used to work out when I, when we were Bantams. I, I, I knew, you know, I, I, my mom was a skating coach. My dad was a former uh, player. Um, so I had the background. I was always around the rink. I, I love to, to play other sports and work hard and, and there's a gym rat and all those things. So I guess you'd say that's the trajectory of a kid that does that, but we still weren't as aware as pe- people are now. Like we've been talking about Connor Bernard for four years and we knew Connor McDonald David when he was a peewee and that just wasn't the way then we, we didn't know who you were up against until that list came out my junior b year in chatham and i was in the middle of it rated in the sixth round or something i didn't have any idea where i stood in the whole scheme of things right so so kind of comes at you fast and then you're front and center for the next 18 months right so hmm. yeah so it's a bit it was a bit a bit of an adjustment i was glad i could do it here i was at home i played in chatham i played in windsor you know my family's around my friends it was yeah. sort of like you know to move away i look i look back on it now and i know a lot of the kids that did and some of are still my friends that had to move at a young age and you know it's it's that would have been i'm not sure i was old enough or what ready for that mm-hmm. to be like and, and and i played everywhere since and but i was older and a little more you know aware of uh, the world around us and where i was headed and, and but as a 15 16 year old to have to pick up and pack and move across the country that would have been hard for me for yeah sure. yeah that makes sense and then that tra- transition from like the ohl compared to the NHL like that's got to be weird right because I mean even if I'm looking at your stats you're like 90 to 91 you're scoring 36 goals 57 games next year 41 goals 50 games and then like in the NHL seven goals in 57 games 12 goals in 75 games like don't look don't look too close okay? well no I mean but like really though it's it's because you're playing with the best in the world all of a sudden right like well yeah. I mean the best in North America and so like how how does that feel when you're going from being like basically a rock star in a pretty big pond in the OHL to all of a sudden you're in the NHL and it's like, okay, now shit's the realest it can get. Like, how does that feel? Well, I'll say this. It was nice to have. So if you see in my bio, I had a year where I played with the national team. So there, back in, in yeah, that the Canadian team, national there team, a, there was a Canadian men's national team that played every year. So there was a there was a um, amateur tournaments all over Europe. Now when the Olympic starts is really when you when you see the the Olympic representative from Canada is now NHL players and it's like best on best. This is what everybody's asked for. But my time there was an actual Canadian men's team that trained out of Calgary and played in all these European tournaments. That's what they did. So we would play exhibition games against some American League teams or. or or NHL teams before in the preseason. And then we go to Europe and play in, in, in like a German tournament or a Swedish tournament or a Russian tournament. And so we'd make trips back and forth to Europe while training in Calgary. So that was the men's national program. And it existed for 30 years until, well, 96 when they, when the, when it changed to NHL competition. So that the, the men's program uh, dissolved at that time because the NHL wanted to take the best to the Olympic Games. And so really 
that was the incentive of the national team was that if you played on the men's national team and you stuck it out for maybe a year or two, even three years, you'd get a chance to maybe play in an Olympic Games. And so I got, I got to play in the 94 Olympics in, in Lillehammer, Norway. So I joined that team, Canadian national team, after my first training camp in Quebec. So I went to Quebec, or no, my second training camp, excuse me, in Quebec. I went to training camp. I was close. I'd signed a contract and they're like, why don't you spend a year there rather than go back to June? Because that would have been my fourth year of junior. So I had a transition year. It was playing against pros, or playing against men, playing against club teams in Europe. You're playing against, you know, pro teams at home and, you know, you see the travel and the demands of that lots of practice um you know all that so it was really good for me i think to sort of transition to that but coming to the nhl i mean you forget like i so i'll tell the story in a minute we were talking about cliff fletcher and, and uh how he you know just kept trading for me for some reason <laughs> <laughs> but it just you know I was part of a big trade come to Toronto, right, after I'd been drafted by the, the Quebec Nordique and thrust into a team that was twice to the conference finals, a good veteran team that played a certain way under a, a, a coach in Pat Burns. So, yeah, it was an eye-opener. And even an eye-opener between what I'd seen in Quebec, which was a rebuilding, struggling, you know, franchise time, and then coming to Toronto where it was, you know, the center of hockey, Pat Burns coach team, media demands. It was it was a, a different animal, for mm-hmm. sure. How long were you in Quebec? Well, I got drafted. I went to two training camps. And my second training camp, they they sent me to the national program where I okay. played, the whole, played there the whole year. So you'll see I, at the end of that year, I played some games in Cornwall, which was the minor league affiliate for Quebec at the time. So, and then that team shortly thereafter was in Colorado, right? <laughs> but when you come, when you get, you know, come to Toronto in a big trade, Matt Sundin, I was in the Matt Sundin for Wendell Clark trade. You know, there's some, there's some pressure. So mm-hmm. I remember thinking, wow, like I gotta, you know, and this is a Pat Burns coach team. I'd watched this team and the way they played, they were old school grind and played hard on the walls. They were heavy and tough and they, that's how they, that's how they played. Mm-hmm. So I recognize pretty quick when you go to camp how good even the role players are. You know, you have Doug Gilmore and you have Mats and you have all these players that are Kirk Muller, guys that were, you know, been to Stanley Cup finals and, and won Stanley Cups. And so it was it was like, how am I going to how am I going to get my foot in the door and play regularly? I'm not sure I'm going to walk in here and run the power play. That was pretty apparent right away. Mm-hmm. So how do you know what else can I do to to get into the lineup? And mm-hmm. stay in the. That's really, you know, there's players, you know, we I talked about this many times. There's players who decide, nope, this is how I play, and if they don't like me, then then that's their fault. And you don't know their names, most of them. You know what I mean? Some guys stick it out and they find a niche to get a place to play, and they and they can make a go of it for a period of time. But 90% of us have to adapt and figure out a way to be useful in an NHL environment because it's a competitive one and there's lots of good players hmm. decide well do i want to be stubborn and stick to what got me here or am i going to alter my game add elements to to be better yeah that makes complete sense like i, I was to, i was totally thinking that that's kind of where you were going to go with that is that like whatever you were doing before just wasn't going to work once you were in that new environment well that's enough yeah it would enough for and pat made it you know pat that we talk about old school coaches like pat would say to me hey listen if you don't do these two things better there's no way you're playing for me hmm. <laughs> that, that was basically it so i'd be like okay you know i, I want to play here yeah uh, you know again being from where we are i mean it was a huge thrill to be elite oh, and yeah. you know so, so i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna be stubborn and so i just said well, okay I'll, I'll i'll hit more i'll win face-offs i'll check i'll do whatever you need me to do because in junior in large part like i you know i came in as a freshman like a rookie and and it was like skate and shoot do your thing you know mm-hmm. like go there was no what uh, there was no uh grace period to adapt it was it's, it's you know throw you into the fire so so that was new and so 
I learned, you know, it took me a little while to adapt, I guess. And I got hurt a couple of times early, which didn't help either. But yeah, I mean, there's only a handful of players who can come in and especially as teenagers and make an impact in the National Hockey League. I mean, it's, I would say, I don't know, this isn't a slight on the, today's game at all because I love it, but it's easier in some respects now because in our time, it was such a physical game. Yeah. So if we're willing to get in there and, and, and be strong and heavy and on the puck. It was difficult. You couldn't just fly around. There was always somebody really to reel you in, knock you down, right? Yeah. So as a, you know, six, 180 pound guy, like I knew I needed to get stronger for mm-hmm. one. And which is funny because oh, like there's a lot of sports where you say six, one, 180, and that's a big dude. But in hockey, that's really not top of the pack for well, size. M- maybe now there's players now like, that's, that's the difference. Like at 185 pounds in the NHL. Now you can, you can, you can get space and if you can skate yeah. and you're, you know, quick and agile, you find space and, and do well. But back in the day, people used to hold on to you and hook and ride. And, and, you know, that, that was the big difference was you had to really fight for space. So I, I just, so if you weren't of a certain ilk, at least, or, or heavy and strong enough, it was hard to find any room. And so, you know, a player like Doug Gilmore or a player like, you know, Matt Sundin, his size and range, you know, Doug was just so so smart so good that he could uh, he could find space and make plays i wasn't good at i knew that right away when i watched doug at the first practice so it was like well what you know what am i going to bring that's going to be enable me to stay in the lineup win over the coach and and be useful right so yeah so how does that work first like when you're you said at the first practice you could tell (coughs) excuse me you could tell just by looking at doug that he was just so good and then you were like oh shit i can't do what he's doing what can i do like what is that How, how does that all play out what is it that he's doing that you feel like you can't do and what is it that you decided on that you were going to lean into to provide value well i mean doug gilmore was already a start he was just such a competitor i mean he was tough and you're talking about being of a certain weight like he was 170 pounds Hmm. but he was tough as nails he was you know, so skilled, gifted with the stick and you know where he was on the ice. Um, yeah, not not a big guy, not a top flight skater, but just real, you know, and an engine that you just don't you just don't see. People don't play that hard that long. You know? mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're watching that every day and the, and the work ethic and, and um, you know, just his ability to come through when you needed him. Um, yeah, like not that I didn't think I could get there one day, but it wasn't going to be that immediate. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's a matter of like I'm in the NHL and yes, I may be in and out of the lineup, but what else can I do to, you know, what part of it I think is, and I talk to kids about what, what is, you know, what does our team need? You know, like what you have to be able to sort of take a thousand foot view of, you know, here's our team. They've been in the conference finals twice. You know, what can I provide that's going to put them over the top, you know? And so I'm not going to be playing on Doug's left wing. So, you know, there's going to be some depth positions that are going to be, you know, fought for, how can I uh, best get my foot in the door there? So, I mean, I, yeah, again, I playing on the wall, being physical face-offs, all the, so, so all the sort of small things you hear now, you know, that players bring in tangibles were, were also part of the game then. Part of it was getting stronger. I spent a lot of time in the weight room, like I did. And in some respects, I think that was maybe not the best. Rushing it to get heavier wasn't a great idea. You, as a gym guy, would know, like I probably got big faster than I needed to, mm-hmm. but I thought I needed it and they did too. So yeah. that was just a sign of the times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a lot of things that ultimately, like I, I say now, like I wouldn't have played 10 years in the league if I didn't, or I wasn't told, or I wasn't said, hey, you know, said, hey, Todd, you got to do these 
things to play regularity and be be a reliable guy and a guy we can trust yeah. as a coach. And if I didn't know that right away and no one was willing to tell me that, then in my ninth, 10th, 15th years of professional hockey, I don't know if I'm still playing because all those things are what kept me in the game. Yeah, that makes sense. Long, right? Because I never scored more than 13 goals a year. Yeah. <laughs> and they, it was a different time. It was harder to score. It was a dead puck here, a lot of checking, a lot of trapping, mm-hmm. but still it was hard. So I recognized, well, I mean, there's only going to be four goals in this game tonight. Maybe. So, you know, what else can I do to prevent or, you know, that's just getting your mind around the fact that, yeah, there's lots of good players. Do I think I can get to that level at some point down the road? Hopefully. But in the meantime, I'm going to do the A, B and C to stay here. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned uh, Cliff Fletcher. <laughs> yeah, yes. So you said he like traded for you multiple times. Yeah. So it is it, actually... You know, I'd seen, you know, watched Cliff from afar and obviously he was running the Leafs when I was traded there. But it's a good story because I didn't really know him other than I watched what he did in Calgary and, and uh, you know, had a, a presence and, uh, you know, was just a great um, manager in the, in the league and did a lot of things. So <clears throat> when I was in Lillehammer for the Olympics, I was playing so i'm on the ice um and it's i think it's a game against either the, either the slovaks or the or the french i'm not sure but mom and dad my mom and dad came so cliff was there he was in lilyhammer and it all it'll come together at the end but he he finds out where my parents are okay so i'm on the ice playing and he comes and shuffles in behind my parents at the game mm-hmm, and this so, is at the olympics this is at the olympics yeah. in lilyhammer so my mom and dad are sitting there and, and Cliff comes up and says, Mr. Mr. Moore, I'm Cliff Fletcher. And, and, and dad, to hear my dad tell it, it was hilarious because he was just like, oh, so Cliff Fletcher is over my shoulder. And he starts talking to mom and dad about me and just saying, hey, we're really we're really uh, fond of Todd. And, we, you know, we're going to try and make a make a play to get him. So circling back, my agent was Don Meehan, okay, And Don Meehan was uh, a Toronto guy from Newport Sports Management. And there still exists to this day and was also Wendell Clark's. And was also Cliff Fletcher's agent, and was lots lots of the Leaf guys current day uh, or present time was were were his clients. So that's how they made the connection. Donnie had talked Cliff. Cliff said, "I'm going to I'm going to the Olympics. So you got to meet with the Warners." Anyway, so long story short, my my junior coach Motor City Smitty with the Windsor Spitfires was also an ex Leaf and was also a Newport Donnie Meehan client, and also knew Cliff Fletcher. So there was a small small little hockey world there. So I don't that doesn't tell him. He's like, "Hey, this Cliff sat down behind us. Um, this guy." I find this out later when I get home in like May. Cliff sat down behind us and said, you know, we're really interested in Todd. We're going to try and make a deal to, to bring him to Toronto, right? So my mom and dad are like, hmm. wow, uh, didn't expect to hear that here, right? So I finished the Olympics. I, I'm actually hurt. I end up playing in the minors a little bit. I come home and we're actually, it's in June and there's a local kid named Chris Allen who was available for the draft. This is in 90, 1994 now, spring. And so dad says to me, hey, I'm meaning to tell you about running into Cliff Fletcher at the Olympics, right? So this is the first time hearing of it, you know, eight weeks later. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, they're, they're going to try and make a deal. So about a, three weeks later, the draft is in June. We drive uptown to my granddad's house because he's the only one that has TSN at the time. So TSN wasn't, you know, there was no cable, right? Yeah. So you didn't have TSN unless you're in town. So we drive to my grandpa's house to watch the draft to see Chris Allen, local boy, get drafted. And uh, so literally, we're, I can remember it. We're walking into my granddad's house and turn the TV on. And they're talking about this trade that's going down on the floor as the draft is starting and it's between Quebec and Toronto. So dad, you know, dad and I look at each other like, wow, is this, is this what you're talking about? Like, this is the trade. So keep in mind, this is February. Cliff Fletcher sits down behind my parents in Lillehammer. Mm-hmm. So they've already been working at this all spring long. So yeah, they announced this trade and I'll never forget it. We didn't even watch the rest of the draft. I got traded 
right there at the start of the draft in the Sunbeam for Clark trade to Toronto. That's awesome. And yeah. So then, of course, I go to Toronto. I played a number of years. Later, I get traded to Tampa, but Cliff had already gone there as well. Cliff had been a part of the management group in Tampa. So he'd left Toronto at the time when I was playing there and was in Tampa as like a senior advisor or something. And they'd already trade for Freddie Modine and then they traded for me and they traded for Mike Johnson. So Cliff played, traded for me again in Tampa. Two years later, three years later, I guess he's in Phoenix. He trades for me again. <laughs> So the joke was without Cliff, I don't, I don't even have a career. Right? So <laughs> the story of him sitting down with my parents at, yeah. at the, at the games. And then, you know, months later it all coming to fruition was, was crazy. And I, so I'm secretly glad I didn't know at the time. Cause I would have, you know, you know, obviously I was 20 years old and it would have been a lot the process thinking I'm, oh, I'm finishing my, my time here with Quebec because Toronto's trading for me. You know? yeah. So, yeah. It, but anyway, that's how that's how that went out went down, and and um, so I don't know if that would be considered tampering at this point, you know, <laughs> agent hockey. But it was cool to find out that later, and that my dad, uh, my dad, and mom were uh, pretty thrilled to know. Yeah, well, so when you were an NHL player, there's like a certain amount of spotlight that's on you. I really wonder, first of all, what was that like? Because you're gonna have a certain amount of like criticism and scrutiny and stuff coming out of media and everything like that, and I mean all kinds of sources. Because again, you're in the spotlight. Light. And then how do you think that must be like for players now with social media? Yeah, I'm not sure how much, um, yeah, how much, you know, you got to have thick skin clearly even to get to the level. But, you know, to, you know, this podcast about talking, like, you know, for me, it was like, it, you know, I wasn't really one to seek out the media attention. Like I tell kids now, like you'd have told me in my thirties or forties, I'd be on TV talking about hockey or like, I wouldn't have thought that. Like I, I wasn't a public speaker or someone that was like, Hey, let's get the camera on me. Right. Mm. So yeah. Um, there was pressure. I mean, I feel like back, back then I tell people this, like the media traveled with you. Right. So it was less cutthroat, you know, like, cause they had to sit on the plane and look you in the eye every time you wrote an article about whoever it may be. Right. Mm. So it was like a, you know, a bit of dialogue. It, we were friendly with the guys that covered the team and now they travel on their own. They can post and say whatever privately, like, like what social media does. So I, I feel like it's just not as intimate as it was like we were it was kind of like they were on our side they were going to spin it in the right way and we were going to work together to to you know to put the story out right but now i feel like everybody's trying to angle for their best you know best story and it's often at the expense of the player or his family and and so i don't necessarily like it and i'm not sure how much i would take in if i were playing today i'm not sure i'd be on social media and i understand you you know these guys have their their platforms and 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 everything to put out what they want we did get media training and then it was mostly about you know putting your own spin on it however you want like it was you know regardless of the question or the the tone of it like you can talk about the power play you know so mm-hmm. you know, and that's good advice for kids i think but yeah i just i don't know if it's quite um the family kind of vibe that i felt in toronto that yeah there was a lot of media but i think most of them would greet you from day to day pleasantly and whether it was, you know, a great article, a great story they had about you that particular day, at least, you, you know, you could look each other in the eye and say, okay, I know you're trying to do your job. I'm trying to do mine. Thanks, whatever. And mm-hmm. now it's easy to hide behind whatever device, right? So... So we we talked to, you mentioned this is a podcast about talking. Very excellent observation. And uh, <laughs> the... Um, the talking that happens, the communication that happens with you at, like as a coach now, now that you're in a coach role, compared to what you heard from coaches when you were playing, how is that different? Well, let me think. Well, I mean, obviously, when you play at the highest level, you, you quickly understand it's a business, 
right? And there's also a whole number of players underneath you who are trying to take your job, right? Because it is a job. And so that becomes apparent pretty fast when you go to camp. And there's 60 guys. You can see there's about a dozen that are right there ready to knock on the door and take, take a job somehow, right? So in college, your team is largely your team. Now, I'll say there's some extra players around on every college team. There'll be, if you can play 20 in a given night, there's always a half a dozen extra bodies. So players that aren't playing and trying to get in, want to know why, want to want to get better and, and, and get their foot in the door. But... <laughs> You know, the difference now is, I think, in, in light of all the, of the video that you can access at every level of hockey, bug flying around, sorry, is that the players want to see what, what it is you're you're telling them they need to do. So let's say we have a defenseman who's a 7D, he's in and out of the lineup, and I say, hey, listen, like, we got two offensive guys ahead of you, um, I need you to just... You know, just rein it in a little bit, make the make a good first plat pass, defend hard, and get the puck up to the forwards. Whatever, simple. And they want to say, okay, show me where I haven't done, show me where I haven't done that as to why I'm not playing. So then it's like, okay, well, you bring me in the room and you say, okay, here, here's a here's a small detail. You know, let's let's clean this up. You don't have to make the extra play. You don't have to beat people one on whatever it may be. And so that's. They they want evidence, <laughs> and I think that starts pretty young now because they're they're videoing games in Adam Peewee, right? So these kids come in to junior with sometimes three four years under their belt of video, and they've mm-hmm. seen themselves, and they know what they can and can't do, and they know, um, you know, when you're saying a to them, they want they want to they want evidence as to the fact that if that really is happening. So I have lots of chats players who are playing regularly and doing really well keep doing this, keep that up. Hey, listen, when, when the power play does this, let's let's think about these things, whatever it may be. And then most of the hard talk is with the players who want more or aren't, aren't in and giving them actual, you know, video uh, evidence of what they can do to, to, to better their chances. And ultimately as assistant coach, which I've been in college, <clears throat> that's your job. Your job is to smooth the message, keep everybody on the, on the boat rowing in the same direction and give them tangible evidence what, what can work for them to play more. And that's really what I do. Mm-hmm. And I like, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I, sometimes I say to them, listen, you're playing exactly how I want you to play, um, but we got some bodies ahead of you. That's just, that's just the numbers game, right? Part of it. It's like, I wouldn't change a thing you're doing, but you see what our, our left side looks like right now. We got, we got a lot of good players. So mm-hmm. don't get disturbed. Your time will come and I'll, and I'll go to bat for you to get you in the lineup. Cause it's, you know, as an assistant coach, it's not your lineup to choose mm-hmm. in general. So you're trying to smooth that over. And that's part of the psychological game. Having having a team and having, you want guys to push each other and want to prove individually, but you also want, um, you know, you want them to know that they're, they're part of the solution. They're not getting in the way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sometimes hard for a kid that age who's had a lot of expectations and has, has done well in the past. Right. Yeah. So when, when it comes to coaching, when you first started coaching early on, what kind of because the majority of coaching is just communication. That's almost all of what it is. Right. So what kind of mistakes did you make with your communication at the beginning of your coaching that you've since fixed? Well, I think the big thing was getting to understand um, the video, like the video part, component of it now has changed. <laughs> I mean, even since I stopped playing, I mean, the, some of the platforms that, that you can access for video now are incredible. And you can isolate players. We recruit players and, and we can go back and watch their shifts from four years ago and just see the, the, you know, trajectory of their development and whatever. So I think the first thing I had to do was, I mean, I was, I feel like my experience alone in a college room or a junior room, um, will carry a little bit of clout. Now I, 
but I also think the players, like we talked, are, are much more shrewd in their own, you know, identity. They know who they are. They've seen themselves. They understand what they do well. They, you can't, you can't say to a, a top end skater, you're not fast enough. They're like, no, I'm, I can skate. Like they know who they are and what they do well. So I think I needed to, the first thing I thought was I needed to come more equipped to understand the video component, how I can use it to reinforce what I'm trying to say. Right. Cause I had no idea. I'd never done a video meeting. Like I'd done meeting, just chatting, getting our heads together and whatever else with, with players I played both on the teams I was on and, and, and coach, but, but, you know, accessing the video and be on the stage. Hey, hey, listen, this is, this is the stuff we're talking about. So let's just clip, clip, clip 40 seconds. Keep that in your, on your phone. And this is what I'm talking about. So talk to you next week or whatever, you know? So yeah, that was the big thing. Cause there was so many of them. I'd been to coaching seminars and they would introduce these ideas to me, these new platforms for video. And I had to kind of pick and choose what I wanted. Every league or coach, wherever you coach has, has a different platform in some respect. So you're all, you're forever sort of relearning some of these platforms and how to use them best for teams. So that was the thing I probably knew the least about, to be fair. And I, and then as you get in it, you think you need to accumulate all this, all this data and info and, and, and stats and all the stuff. And, and, and eventually it always circles back that you just need to, you need to speak to the people and be concise and not cloud the message, mm-hmm. which is hard thing for coaches now because there's so much information out there is trying to eliminate what's not necessary and just really get to the point of, of what you're trying to get across whether it's an individual meeting or a power play meeting or a group meeting whatever it may be that's that's a challenge and i that's a challenge we have too because we have lots of data lots of data on how we play and what we do well and what we could improve on and even in game there's all this stuff we're looking over charts and paperwork and numbers and i think well you know what are we really what do we really need to narrow down to really deliver to the team best and that's a that's a hard thing because lots of lots of you know in the higher leagues now there's a half a dozen coaches there's there's guys in the back room collecting stuff they're sending things all the time i think it's just important to be able to eliminate um what's not really necessary at that point and really focus down on what you what you need and that's uh that's a challenge now because it's almost become oversaturated data mm-hmm yeah, that makes sense. When when it comes to the coaching and the NHL and everything, you're when did so how many kids do you have, Todd? I got four. Four. Got yeah. Grateful dad. Yeah. Grateful dad. Nice. It's a good shirt. <laughs> I like it. I noticed. I got four. Three so, girls and three girls well, and know, a boy. And your sister coaches my daughters in uh dance. In dance. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So how is your boy the oldest? No, Ava, my oldest is Ava. She's t- gonna be twenty next week. She's in Ottawa. Okay. University of Ottawa. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything that you learned through hockey or through coaching or anything like that that you found helped translate into being a better dad? Oh, um, well, I did coach Sam's uh, team, but um, I found it I found it hard. I, I really, I mean, because you want <laughs> I should you want what's best for your son. Mm. You want them to uh, you want them to have the same sort of passion for the sport that you chose and in some respects he's a bit like you he did he enjoyed everything equally and he 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 played hockey and he played it at a high lift still does but he also liked basketball and he also liked track and he also liked volleyball and, and so we didn't discourage him at all but i mean to say he was all in on hockey when he was 10 12 when i was coaching him he wasn't mm. he was ready to go play baseball and he was ready to go play and really i was that kid too i guess because i did all the sports and i i, I think it helps i think it's a good thing to do yeah 
turn them off it. But um, I would say, yeah, I mean, as far as making me a better dad, it, it, it comes back to communication again. And, and I probably, when I first came home and started to get into coaching, I'm not sure I would be where I am now. I wish I, you know, where I am now, 15 years ago when my kids were young and little, um, I wish I, I wish I were there then mm-hmm. because I didn't you know I was fresh off playing. I'd come home from Europe. I was sort of just, you know, trying to get my head around what the, the hockey um, culture environment looked like here again, because I'd been away for six years. So that was, yeah, I think, um, again, the biggest thing for me would be after, after you have all this information and you have, you know, a plan and you have a practice this and you want to work on these skills and you want to, and that's really what I did when I got home. Ultimately, it's how best you get that point across. And that comes from communication and, and tone and encouragement and all those things so it doesn't matter what level you're coaching at you have to have that i think because um players learn differently people players learn visually we're learning all this too players learn visually. so i have a i have a platform where i design drills and i and i can actually put a camera on the player's helmet Hmm. and run through a drill where they can see themselves perform a drill and it's been really useful for eight 10 12 year old kids so and and even our college kids but you don't do that to your kids you don't put a camera on their head and then This this is what you did wrong around the house. You know, if I'd had that platform 10 years ago, I would love to have used it for my son. Yeah. And just see, so he could see himself. Cause you know, these kids are all, you know, this is the video game uh, era. This is how they, uh, how they absorb things. So yeah. um, Yeah. That maybe again, it just comes back to, you know, communication and how best to get your point across. And if, um, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I guess uh, that would have been, I probably would have been better. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned like coming back from Europe and everything. I was wondering, and how that was like that transition from being a top tier athlete to a regular life like what <laughs> like what is that like what how does that feel because i mean you, there's especially with a sport like hockey it's just so fast paced it's so intense and like you said it was a lot more rough of a game back then and so you're well, you got this high risk of injury as well and it's like every time you step out on the ice you know you could get your freaking head taken off and you got a job to do and it's go 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 and so like the amount of adrenaline and focus you're going to need from a day-to-day with your hockey player lifestyle and then moving on to okay i'm a dad now and you don't have to be wired so tight you know what what is that like that transition well thankfully i had something to do right away i'm going to plug you in here bud because yep. i'm uh, on. so i mean when i first finished i, I was uh bought a ring in chatham and that's when i first started to do the skill development stuff right so i had something to do right away sorry so good and so i i just yeah thankfully i had something to do and i just poured all my energy into renovated a, a rink and we put down the synthetic ice we had a basically a half arena and a shooting pad and a ramp so i was literally when i when i retired uh, i was playing in germany in cologne i mean we we bought this place uh three weeks later so i just that's that may june i just poured my energy into fixing this place up getting it ready and then we started to run camps in the summer so i i didn't really have a trans like honestly i was still involved in the game i was still teaching it i, I enjoyed the coaching part of it i did have you know once i got home I started coaching junior a little bit and my son team and I did have some to learn I think like I, I feel like you know having been in Europe I'd missed out on you know I played for Canadian a couple of Canadian coaches and we had you know lots uh lots of good ideas and and um, I guess I was still learning about the game and, and strategy and things as I finished playing but once you come back you start to watch closer and you talk to coaches at higher levels and you go to these some of these coaching uh seminars I think you really you, you see how how quickly things evolve right and so I 
I, I felt like I, you know, just being away from Europe, I missed uh, I missed some of that, right? So you kind of sink back into the culture here in Canada and the hockey, and you sort of like, wow, like that's different from when I left, or that's that's a new idea. That's so you try to just get your head around that. But ultimately, I was just skill development strictly what I was doing, and that's the part I enjoyed most because we'd run hockey goals, and I'd been doing things on the side as a player all the way through. So I felt like I had a great setup, had a great facility. I could teach, and we ran soccer and other things in the off season at that place, a hockey hockey station. So yeah, I, I mean, we were ready to come home. Like to be honest, like I I could have played a couple other places. I was considering actually maybe even going to Asia to play. Mm. I had a friend that was running a team in the British League in Belfast. Talked about going, but you know, we had three kids. They were you know seven, five, and four, and we're like, ah, you know, like maybe it's time. And and when you play in Europe you're home now, right? Like the seasons are winding down now. Um, and you're, you know, so every year we came home and we put the kids in school here. So the last, you know, six, eight weeks of every school year, our kids are in school in Blenheim. And then we would go back to Europe fall, right? So, so they, I think, you know, they were comfortable coming back and they knew people at school, the teachers were real accommodating. It was easy, really. So then it was like, well, we're going to pick up and move to a different place again. Like we'd already done that three times, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just time. And, and you talked about just the injury and yeah, I, just had a, you know, a bunch of things. I had an ankle problem. I had a at the very end, I got what basically was whiplash. I got, I went to hit someone and I just jarred my, my sternum and separated shoulder and, you know, collarbone, all kinds of things. So I just was, yeah, it was just time. It was, yeah. you know, April, May, I was, I could hardly, I could hardly lay down and like I rehab for three more months to get, when we get ready and go in August again. And I thought it was just, it's just time to stop. Right. So yeah, this, cause it sounds like you had a new sense of purpose to transition to. Right. And I'm just wondering if you had any like or if you recall afterwards having any kind of lingering feeling of like the excitement of it all like a gladiator that no longer goes into the ring you know like because that's what these kind of sports are is our modern day gladiators is these warriors going in and doing this thing that's high intensity high risk of injury go 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 yeah you know i i, I talk to players i never really i don't know i guess i got it out of my system <laughs> you know like like i tell people you know i play hockey i, I still like to I mean, I play in some of the, um, some charity events and some Leaf alumni things. And I, and part, part of it is just great to give back to the community and raise money, whatever it may be. But part of it also is just to connect with guys I, I haven't, that I played, you know, and that's really true. And so, you don't, I mean, do I miss the competition? I mean, there probably was a stretch off and on there when your body feels better. I know I'd say like, I went to play in a men's tournament over in Asia and felt great. I hadn't played a lot of hockey, but I was in relatively good shape because I was on the ice every day working with kids and, and you're not you know you're not you're not hitting and being physical and all the things you have to be when you play so mm -hmm. I, my body probably recovered in the first few years after i was done better than it had in years right but no i i don't i don't uh i don't really miss it i like to see my friends and i like the you know the old people joke like it's like when you're on the the bus or the plane or the, in the dressing room that's the stuff you miss and do i miss you know some of the guys i played against no they were a nightmare to play. <laughs> So, so no, I mean, uh, but I, I, I honestly, I'd love to play. I'll always play. Uh, I, I just like the camaraderie of it and getting together with friends to do it. But the, you know, tooth and nail battles back in the day and putting my body to that again. I don't know. I'm not, not now. Like I, yeah. you, you see me work out, you see me work out. It's an executive workout now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, actually, I've been meaning to mention your mom gave me skating lessons when uh, there there was yeah. a time when I was a kid that my mom recognized that I was struggling with hockey and I was losing confidence. So she paid for one-on-one skating lessons for me. And ever since then, I was always the fastest guy on the ice. I'm, I could I could probably go to any kind of league around here that'll take the average adult male and outskate almost everyone else. I can't hit the net worth shit, but I'm fast as hell. And You're just like me, buddy. Just yeah. like me. <laughs> it's, all, it's all thanks to your mom. Um, is there anything that you recall from your career that was like a particular role model or a coach or another player or someone that stood out that found really beneficial to your experience as a hockey player? Oh, wow. Um, so far as someone I, as a role model or someone I, I, I aspired to be, I always, I always said we would say Mark Messier, but you know, Mark Messier was, you know, He's just a beast, right? He he could skate, he's physical, he could score. He was a you know great leader, uh, you know hungry, you know just a just a consummate pro, a guy I think a lot of players looked up to. Um, you know, I, I mentioned as far as just someone that has an impact on your on uh, career. You know, Cliff again, Cliff. If I don't if I don't if I don't come to Toronto and I don't make the connections with uh, you know the likes of you know Brad Smith, my coach in Windsor, and, and I, I don't uh, I mean I knew. Wendell through Brad, my coach of the Spitfires, before I was ever in the trade with him, right? So uh, my agent, the connections through the people in Toronto, like if I don't, you know, if Cliff Fletcher isn't part of that first, you know, half a dozen years of my career, you know, I'm not sure how it goes, right? Because I was hurt a lot. <laughs> you know, I had bad blue shoulder out, had a quad injury all in the first sort of three years of my career, right? So, so Cliff sort of, I'd get healthy and, you know, I'd spend my summers in Toronto working out with Chris Broders, leave there for the time, great, sort of nursing me back to health, uh, you know, like injury after injury. So if I don't, if I don't have those in my court, I'm not sure, uh, you know, who knows? I don't know. Like, uh, you know, I was a first round pick, but I was hurt a lot too. And so I didn't always play regularly or play well. And so you need, you need uh, those kind of people who, despite the way it looks, uh, still have your best interests, right? So, um, you know, clearly my, my parents, you know, you talk about my mom, my mom's skating background obviously was a huge part of me getting there. I, we did all the camp power skating and things as kids here. And um, my dad was heavily involved in the minor hockey program and helping with coaches so yeah i mean as far you know and as far as the teammate i would say mike john like mike and i always joke like we we played just about everywhere together like you know we played he came from bowling green in toronto my third year and we played together in toronto and then i went to tampa in the fall he came in the spring the same year we played a whole other year together we spent some time in phoenix together and then later on at the end of our career we played together in germany right so oh nice so yeah yeah he'd be a teammate as far as, you know, a guy I spent the most time with, stood up in his wedding, great guy, uh, nice family. You know, I really, really enjoyed being around Mike. Mm-hmm. And, and we were lucky enough to go everywhere, and, you know, in the prime of our lives, right? So it's a good, good run. Uh, Freddie Modine um, was the guy who lived in my building. We also we also got traded to Tampa together. He's had, he had a great career. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, those are the guys. I and mean, we talked earlier, like when I play in these games, heart and stroke, uh, hockey for homeless, uh, whatever it may be, um, you, you know, it's... It's great to you know be visible in the community and be charitable and look after uh that side of it but it's also cool to run into guys you haven't and that's what you know that's partly why i enjoy it mm-hmm. I'll, again I'll, I'll always play but when you can reconnect teammates sometimes you know i i ran into a guy dave l i hadn't seen him in about a decade he was you know a veteran guy when i was young and looked after me a little bit so yeah those are the those are the things that make it all worthwhile when you circle back and uh and see those guys but it takes uh you know it takes a village and really did for me because 
you know, I, it, the way it might, we talk about my trajectory was quick and then it, then it's, it slowed fast because I couldn't stay healthy and, and I was getting bounced around a little bit. So you need, you know, someone that still believes in you. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, so, something about hockey that I wanted more of when I played was communication on the ice is that I find that, well, at least when I played and I didn't play in anything too intense as far as competitive. So it's probably different, but I just found that people wouldn't like shout at you enough. People didn't like teammates didn't communicate enough to help you know where they were or what was on their mind or where they were, where they were planning on going or whatever. I, I just love the idea of having a hockey team that's just constantly talking to each other while they're on the ice. What are your thoughts on communication on the ice? Well, we talked earlier about, you know, how you sort of lay the foundation in the fall for what your team does and the way you play. And, you know, whether it's a forward-checking scheme or a defensive defensive zone idea, uh, uh, face-off play, power play, breakout, whatever it may be, <laughs> those are all things you, you as the coach implement and we've sort of the latest thing with uh, coach Hamlin was you know having the players introduce the system so whether you're whatever your system may be systems are generally just ideas that you have in different facets of the game we have the players now with video in a in a um, symposium kind of forum introduce the system so sometimes there's eight or ten different ideas and we'll get a group of the uh, veteran guys to like talk about the four checking scheme or whatever maybe and great thing is watch shape watch sorry one second do that and then cutting out here it's a todd uh, for example. todd you hear me oh my god yeah, yeah i can hear you there we go okay try again sorry yeah so it's just as a coach seeing that take shape and watching the players communicate like at a at the at the at a, fo- a face-off for example they have a face-off play in mind you watch the centerman talk to the d and the d so i will i watch hockey for that kind of stuff and i'll the interactions between the coach and uh, a player as they're going on the ice or coming off the ice um so yeah i mean that stuff you you know when you have the players take some you know responsibility for it and ownership of it then you see that communication happen more and more i would i would guess in minor hockey there's not really a system mm-hmm. per se but you would have at the, at the higher levels but you know there are you know face-off plays and i think there's things you can do with kids that will get pique their interests and get them talking more with one or another it's just harder to get a 12 year old boy to talk than it is a 24 year old boy that makes sense right but yeah. but it's cool to see them see them take ownership of it and then and then sort of uh you know toss ideas around together which is really what you want to do. Right? Yeah, so, something I remember that you just said was uh, you're talking about face-off plays. And I remember in a year, just house league, we had uh, another coach sub in because our coach wasn't going to make it for the game. And uh, uh, Ollie, Dan Oliphant, you know, I'm sure. Um, yeah, 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 and yeah. He's su- such a good dude. And he came in and he was like, okay, we're going to do this thing called the bulldog. And every time we're at a face-off in their zone, you look back at the bench. The centerman's got to look back at the bench. Everyone's got to look back at the bench. And if I'm holding the fist up, that means we're running the bulldog. If I'm not holding the fist up, then don't run it. And the bulldog is to okay. get the puck to the the middle D and they're going to blast it at the net and then everyone's going to rush the net. That's this, that's this play, right? And I was like, okay, cool, right? And so then we're, we're playing and we get face-offs and he puts his fist up and every once in a while he wouldn't and stuff and then it got to like the third period and he's like okay we're, we're doing it we're doing it like we're running it guys and we're they're like okay and i'm on the bench watching this and i'm like dan what what's the point man like this hasn't been successful one time like we haven't even come close to scoring on doing this why are we still doing this like this is so dumb and he was like trevor it's not about that it's that when they're getting at the face-off they're not worrying about the video game they're going to play later they're not worrying about what they're going to have to eat for dinner they're looking back at the bench and their heads in the game and i was just like whoa okay that makes total sense 
blew your mind. Yeah. So it was. Well, I mean, that's part of it, especially yeah, keeping them interested and uh, engaged, right? And so that's that's all good. I mean, another thing about when when you're working with kids and that you take you take a face off play, for example, and there's this commotion around that, so the players are all looking back at the bench, and then so then it becomes like you see that three or four times as a 12 year old, and you're like, wow, what are they? What are they? What are they doing? Like, what, what's this? this, this what's this play or whatever so it becomes a distraction for the opponent yeah because it's it's like well what what can i expect to happen here should i be you know worried like and you know so we we always yeah like there's so many elements as you move up that there's you know different ways to break out and different ways but ultimately it's just like you know getting the players to buy into that and then share it and then work together on it and you mm. watch it happen in practice. So, you know, we'll be doing a defensive zone scheme to try and get the puck back quicker or whatever it may be. And, and you know, you'll see the players communicate together and you'll you'll kind of sometimes just listen in on that conversation to make sure that this is the way, you know. And then as the season goes on, it becomes, you know, less and less about um, teaching. It's about just following through on the concepts you've already put in place forever, right? So, so that's yeah, that's uh, that's the rewarding part for me is seeing it all take shape and then really believe it can do it. Mm. And that's that's the half the battle. Yeah. Uh, so you did say that you got to head out in the next few minutes here. Yeah. Um, I have one final question for you that I try to ask everyone. If you imagine the human consciousness is a little man inside your head watching a computer screen, and you know how people put sticky notes on their like laptop to try and remember things. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. What I'm talking about. So if you could, <laughs> done that. yeah. Right? So if you could write something on. On a sticky note that would just appear inside the consciousness of all humans in the world all at once what would you write on that all, little sticky note all humans in the world oh my that's that's a that's a good one right now there's lots happening um oh be good to each other be good, be good to, to each other. other how's that i like that yeah that's good that's a good one that works is there anything you would like to say to our listener before we sign off here no why well, you put me on the spot I, I, I no i just been good to chat with you good luck with the podcast so how many episodes have you done now uh this is shit i think i have nine up and then i have oh you got yeah and then i have one two that i've recorded that i haven't edited yet so you're gonna be 12 i think okay. yeah is there anyone you're digging deep you're what? digging deep now yeah. Yeah. I'm in the double digits. Scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Oh no. God. No, I'll, I'll talk to anyone. I don't care. Uh, on that note, do you have anyone that you suggest? What? Sorry. Sorry. You're cutting out again. Good message. I mean, this is Sorry, like, hang a, on. You know, no, just saying that's a good message to kind of maybe end on that. You know, this, this is what your podcast is. You know, if you have a lot of, lot of, uh, you know, a message to your viewers, you can't talk, uh, you can't talk enough about, especially with all the things happening, all the things happening in the world. It's a good, uh, good way to end it. Uh, talk. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Did I lose you? Yeah, you a little bit, a little bit there, but I think we got the message. You were saying that uh, just kind of putting some more effort into talking is probably a good final message. Oh, oh hello. Yeah, you're cutting out now too, buddy. Sorry. Uh, shit, I'm in my house. It should be fine. You got me? Yeah, I think I got you now. Is there uh, is there anyone else that you recommend for having as a guest? Any ideas? Uh, well, I mentioned Chris. You should have uh, talk to Chris McLeod. He likes to talk too. <laughs> Chris McLeod. And he has his own podcast. Yeah own podcast oh, I'll, right. I'll connect you guys yeah that'd be cool um he has his own podcast. he's he's a he's a he's tried to get guests in the past so he'll be sensitive to you guys trying to find he's a good guy uh he runs the the radio voice like ckSY he mm. does the Spitfire game booth with me right so a good guy and yeah he loves to he'd love to talk to me yeah that'd be awesome I'd really talk. appreciate that yeah, likes to talk awesome okay well I'll let you get to your thing I really appreciate your time is there anything that you suggest for me to like make this better for the guest or improve the podcast or anything like that right no i you know this i thought that was good i mean uh 
you do run a gym. I mean, so you, you could take, I mean, I know it's about talking, but you know, that's part of, you know, being a good coach, a fitness, whatever it may be, you could sort of tie it back to your own fitness experience and how that helped, helped you get into what you're doing. I mean, that's part of it too. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in gym. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've considered talking about like fitness and health and stuff, but I'm considering doing like a whole separate podcast that is just like the form fit gym podcast where I'm talking about like all fitness and health and everything, and then getting people on there and not necessarily talking about talking or communication, just talking about health and fitness and exercise. But I'm sure I'll work it in here and there. I'm not really, I I just haven't decided which, which way I want to go with it yet. If I just want to implement some of my fitness knowledge into this podcast like trickle it in or if i want to make a totally separate one so i don't know yet okay yeah well i find it interesting too and i have a daughter who's i told you my oldest abe is at ottawa she's taking kinesiology so she has uh, an interest in the the body and the mind so mm. i probably need your help I... <laughs> yeah yeah probably <laughs> all right thanks a lot todd appreciate it man yeah we'll see you thank you trevor yeah, yeah take care thank see you around hey you listening to this right now you yes you i appreciate that you've listened to it this far. That's awesome. And that means that you at least enjoyed it or else you would have stopped it and went and done something else. And it would be really cool if you could share it with someone. I'm sure you know somebody that might also enjoy it. So just, you know, hit the little share button and there'll be like a link you can copy and you can just text it to your BFF Jill. I don't know if you know a Jill. I don't know. Just somebody. Just... Share it with one person and I will be forever grateful. Thank you. Have a great day.